thanks very much for uh, doing this and taking a little bit more of your time than anticipated. No, that's fine. Okay. No problem. Aunt Janet, this is sort of a unique setup here because usually we call the introducer like right before we record. And usually it's all the guys on, but it's just me right now. We, I was sort of, we were struggling to think of someone to introduce the episode. And as I shared with you earlier, while I was running this morning, I was like, Aunt Janet, she's perfect. She's perfect for all of these different reasons. One, she's kind of, you're at that, as we talked about, right after college stage when the Space Shuttle Challenger uh, exploded. You've obviously spent decades an unsaid number so that no one can guess your age in the aerospace industry. And not only that, you have performed at a very, very high, intelligent, technically proficient level within aerospace uh, academics um, as well. Maybe first, um, what do you remember about the Challenger disaster, where you're at, first thoughts so i was like you said i was a lot a young engineer at martin marietta then martin marietta now it's lockheed martin and it was a cold uh beautiful morning and later in the morning towards lunchtime i met my husband to have lunch uh near the windows At that point in time uh the shuttle launches had become almost like second nature and no one expected, truly expected, a disaster like the Challenger and then the other one that happened subsequently. And I just remember uh, my colleagues running in and saying that the Challenger had exploded and it was, you know, just an overwhelming feeling and one mm-hmm. of incredulous. I was incredulous. And so Uncle Bob and I ran outside and we were all trying to make sense of what had just happened. Part of my ignorance where where were you at in Florida when this happened? I was in Orlando. Okay. And in Orlando, you can clearly see the shuttle launches once they wow. clear a certain altitude. Yeah. Um you can you can certainly see them, you know, whether they end in uh, an anomaly like what happened with the Challenger, but on any normal day, you can watch the shuttles or the even today the rocket launches yeah. from Orlando. So, I mean, did you, what did you see exactly then when you went outside? Oh, I saw what I'm going to call the initial contrail, um, you know, of the, of the, what you would typically see with a launch, which is just this line of, you know, gases and condensation line like you would with an airplane. Except for then at a certain point in altitude, you could see this big cloud kind of midair with these like spider-like legs coming out of what clearly was debris and smoke. Wow. That's, I did not know that you experienced it that, um, uh, materially, I guess. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. with that, with that experience taking place, how did that affect, and we actually talked about this on the actual podcast and, you know, obviously just from a broader American standpoint, how did that affect what you, how you felt about the space industry and its risks and opportunities? Or it didn't change it at all? Um, I, I think that probably at that time, 
certainly my support of the space industry did not waver. I mean, I was working on the defense side of things for Martin Marietta at the time and was working on actually Department of Defense programs that mm-hmm. were non-space related, but but Martin Marietta was involved in space. Right. And so my support of the space industry did not waver. I just remember being incredibly sad, almost like uh, 9-11, mm-hmm. although not yeah. to, obviously not to the human tragedy that that was. Sure. But just this overwhelming sadness. I had no doubt that the space program would continue. Um, I had no doubt that it was a good thing, um, but I just was incredibly sad. And yeah. I was anxious to find out what exactly happened. Do you sense, did you sense, like, just as as an American, was there any obvious change in how Americans perceive the risk and rewards of space exploration after this disaster? And also, yeah, I think you briefly referenced it. And, uh, were you referencing the Columbia disaster that was, you know, 10 years later or yeah. so? I would think that it did. I think that there's always a group of citizens, Americans, people who live here that question the the role of space and the need for space. Think that that probably happened then more so, or there was a questioning mm-hmm. as there is today. There's always a questioning: Why are we going to? So that's a very uh, suitable segue to sort of the other main question that I'd like to hear your contributions to. I had indicated to you that I remembered us talking at Thanksgiving last fall. It was me and you and uh, Aunt Mary and my dad about just space exploration as a whole right now. Is it worth the investment? In fairness to Aunt Jan or Aunt Mary and my dad, you know, who knows whether they're saying 100% or 50% or whatever, you know, is the investment worth it based upon the issues on the ground, whether climate change or wealth inequality or, you know, fill in the blank. So what is your, how would you answer that question to someone who is challenging that? I think as a, actually it's a multi-pronged response. My first question to anyone who asks that would be, are you ready to give up your cell phone? Mm, that's great. That's a great first response. <laughs> and, and normally people say no, right? Mm. I'm not ready to do that. Well, that's because we were up in space, right? And then the rest of that answer is we need space. And this is probably what you heard me say at the table. We need space to save Earth and humanity. And I fully, fully, 100% believe that. The mm-hmm. true first visible evidence of climate change came from space. Right. Yeah, I do remember you saying right? that. Right. So that's one thing. We have the ISS up there. We have people up there that can see things that are going on down here. And, of course, we have satellite images. But it's to save Earth and humanity. The next response to that is, you know, there was this physicist, Stephen Hawkins, who came up with, um, I think, the black hole theory. Right. Stephen mm-hmm. Hawking. Sure. He passed away. And he said maybe 10 years ago, before he passed, probably 15, that he thought that Earth would be uninhabitable in 100 years. Hmm. What do we do about that? You know, we have evidence of climate change. We have someone who's predicting that if we keep going the way we're going, Earth will be uninhabitable in 100 years, probably now 85. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need space to keep peace and security on Earth. Uh, what do you mean by that, peace and security? During the Cold War, there was this kind of this, uh, it was a term called mutually assured destruction. And, the, you know, with nuclear power that nobody's going to blow each other up, you know, in theory, because mm-hmm. they can blow each other up. Right. Well, the the same thing is happening in space. You know, countries are going to space, period. Um, and some of them are, you know, our allies and some are not. If we don't go to space uh, and have a presence there. So now I'm coming from not only the United States perspective, but also some of the the other nation states on Earth that want space used for peaceful purposes only. You know, we need to be there. We need to be in space. One one last thing I'd like to hear a few words from you on, you know, is sort of sort of the speech itself. The speech for this episode is Ronald President Reagan's words after immediately after the Challenger exploded. Do you remember the speech, though, when it happened in 1986 and any thoughts you had on it or any memories of how Americans in general responded to it? I don't remember how Americans responded to it. I think he needed to address people in the United States about what had happened, especially since it had, you know, a school teacher on board and mm-hmm. all of these children around the United States, right. literally around the world, were watching what had happened. And I think one of my friends told me she was watching it and she was maybe nine and immediately the teacher went up and turned off the TV. And so they were left with this little kids, like what just happened. I think he did a really, really great job. I do remember, I did rewatch it for this podcast, but I also remember when he spoke about it and I thought he was brief and to the point uh, and supported NASA and, and the continuing space programs. If you were your friend's teacher who turned off the TV, what would you have done in that circumstance? I think if I had been the kind of the adult in the room at the time, I probably would have turned it off as well, but maybe with an introduction to why I needed to turn this off and what may have just happened and Mm -hmm. try to calm the students down a little bit. Because yeah. it had to be really confusing. Yeah, as we talked about later in this episode, you know, obviously a lot of school children saw 9-11, but you at least knew what was already happening, more or less, right? Versus this, as you were expecting, just an amazing, you know, inspiring flight. Yes. So thank you for doing this. At this point, I'm going to let you now transition from Professor Janet Tinoco to show show person Aunt Janet Tinoco. Introducing this podcast, um, which is the speech done by President Ronald Reagan in 1986, uh, the evening following the Challenger disaster. And I know that Mike's going to be on the line and Ross and Landon. And I think this is a I actually think this is a great opportunity for the conversation to continue with respect to why space. And I turn it over to you. Excellent. Let's cue the music. Done, right? (laughs) Yes, you're done. Thank you so much. That was that was really great. I'm glad I thought of uh, asking you to do this. Have a great rest of your Saturday.
Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz, and Landon Fry are all are all here. It's free. Free. I've back I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for ten minutes. I don't want to podcast here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a gift. We are called to emerge from that default setting of self-involvement. Uh, Ross, what what new uh, speech series are we starting off here? All right, so we have closed out speeches by prisoners, starting speeches from the 80s. Now, I know what everyone's thinking, like any 80s, but we are specifically going to tackle the 1980s. Um, I'm actually not sure why we're... Mike, why are we doing the 1980s? Well... All four of us, Matt's not here tonight, but all four of us are sort of born in the twilight of the 80s, 1988 for myself, 1989 for these other other babies, and I don't know, growing up, I used to remember us watching a lot of movies that were made in the 80s, and you know, my parents, very young in their marriage in the 1980s. And there's there's just a certain sort of like youthful, magical idealism to what the 1980s were like for me. And maybe part of it is exactly because I was really never conscious during that time period. <laughs> so maybe this is just a late attempt for me to re-explore, for all of us to potentially re-explore that decade that that final decade before the world changed with the birth of the speech guys. Do you guys like, I feel like there's a lot of like eighties parties, you know what I'm saying? Like people throw, you dress like it's oh, the eighties themed. Yeah. More yeah. I don't the feel 70s. like maybe in the early two thousands, there were seventies parties, but now they're all, 80s. I just like 2030s. They'll be that's 90s what I was going to ask. Like, are there nineties parties? Like how would people present themselves? Cause like, I feel like at an eighties party, I'm picturing, Girls have big hair, and guys have, like, kind of mullet things and big sunglasses. I don't know. I feel like I have a look that's like, oh, that's the 80s party. But I don't know what I would wear to a 90s party. You'd wear a Hawaiian necklace and put highlights and lots of hair gel in your hair and wearing Old Navy blue jeans and an American flag Old Navy Mm -hmm. t-shirt. Okay. All right. Have you ever been to a 90s party? Okay. All right. All right. Well, we're, we're speeches from the 80s, um, so I'm going to bat lead off here. So before I jump into it, uh, when I was trying to figure out which speech to do, I mean, I knew Reagan was a pretty big name from the 1980s. Um, so I don't know, like the whole we'll tear down this wall and things like that were kind of in my mind. I came across Ronald Reagan's speech after the Challenger disaster, which is on January 8th, 1986. And I just, reading through it, 
I'm sorry. What? Oh yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I just feel like the speech itself. I I don't think I knew a ton about the Challenger disaster. I mean, I would be able to tell you basically what happened, but that's how we got here. So quick, we'll just try to run through a bit of context on. Why don't we go ahead and take a listen to that speech excerpt you have in mind, right. and um, go from there. Does that work? Yep, man, it's fine with me. The families of the seven. We cannot bear, as you do, the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century, it's hard to dazzle us, but for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. Okay, set us up for some context, Ross. Challenger disaster, Challenger space shuttle. Where's where's this land in the context of the space program? So... I mean, this is what, so the, we reached the kind of the space when we first went to the moon was in the 1960s, I believe. 69. Um, 69. Okay. So it's not even been 20 years yet. We've had several other missions to space. Um, so this, the idea of getting there isn't exactly brand new. Um, one kind of unique thing on this space trip was the i believe this is the first time a civilian was going to be going into space uh, a teacher but so we've got a teacher on board so that kind of drew a lot of more interest uh you talked about you know school kids watching this live across the country uh it's still a big deal it's happening it had been canceled several times uh this specific shuttle takeoff several different days just for different reasons so it was finally launch day, uh, super cold morning. We might get into the, why that was important later. Tons and tons of people watching nationally on television. And uh, just over a minute after takeoff, uh, the shuttle had a malfunction, explosion, resulting ultimately in the death of all of the crew members. What were your guys' first thoughts? Well, I certainly obviously don't remember the Challenger disaster, but there was the other spatial disaster, which I always sort of um, paired in my head. Gosh dang, now I feel bad not remembering what the name of that space other one was in 2003 Columbia. or so. Columbia, right. Yeah, so I sort of think of those together in company, just sort of... But yeah, first reactions to the speech. I mean, I think we all commented on that it's obviously very brief, much like Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, brief, but very substantial in uh, the amount of 
content and weight that it carries? I just caught on to the 25 years. Um, I don't know why, but like the U.S. space program is 25 years old. I mean, you could have been, what, let's say you're nine when you watched us go on the moon. The year you were born essentially is when NASA started in like 58 originally really didn't pick up steam until Kennedy started talking about going to the moon. And then, yeah, by the time you're 26, which is still like nine years younger than us these days, you see the moon, what, 15 years later, you see a whole different form of spacecraft. I don't know, it's just a, it's a blossoming technology that is still, especially at this juncture, very, very young. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to put into perspective how how short of time probably went between the moon and what we were trying to do here and putting up basically civilians as a, as a teacher going into space. I think that was surprising to me to reflect on. I do feel like I was just kind of impressed with the speech itself, just how he definitely took time to like do homage to the people themselves and like build them up. He mentioned them each by name. Um, like re, like commented to the families said something effective no we don't understand like your pain so i feel like he definitely acknowledged the grief and sorrow at the loss of human life which is always the the biggest thing but then at the same speech in a very brief speech he also i mean addressed to children this kind of concept of bad things happening and then also was able to tie in like you know i'm sure a lot of people were angry and frustrated and like you know called out nasa and said how good they were and then kind of threw in some like poetic language to kind of keep the push to space alive if that makes sense and i just i feel like i was kind of struck with how he did a lot of different things in a well flowing speech in a very short amount of time yeah i mean i think i think that what you're commenting on there um just demonstrates the demonstrates the awareness of President Reagan to be able to, you know, sort of pull out of thin air, if you will, like, okay, what are the, what are the three things that the Americans listening or watching tonight are going to be most concerned about, right? It's going to be honoring those who we, whom we lost. It's about saying something to the children watching Um, and it's about, um, continuing on like that this won't stop the program or stop adventuring and a nod back to Francis Drake who died 390 Mm -hmm. years ago on the same day in an adventurous manner and that we will proceed. It might be an interesting question to play with later in the podcast. You know, you think of John F. Kennedy and how it was it was his his philosophy essentially that got us to the moon, right? I mean, we've I think we've all listened to a number of podcasts and read books and articles on how important Kennedy's enthusiasm was in getting us to the moon granted he did it just because he wanted to beat the soviets but regardless right and on the other end of the coin like how much of an effect did this event have on the 
philosophical vision or enthusiasm for space travel. Like you're saying, Reagan sort of anticipated like this sense of America being like punched in the gut, if you will, and sort of trying to speak to that. But regardless, you know, it's still still something to be reckoned with or, or yeah. dealt with. I feel like it was... And refreshing is not the right word, obviously, because it's a very solemn speech and, you know, people died and stuff. But I was it was almost nice in a way that I feel like there is this. I feel like in some ways, like just the idea that the president of the United States is in some ways like the voice of the nation, like he's going to speak to the people when something happens. And you just get the sense and part of it's just in a tragedy. Right. Everybody does seem to kind of, you know, put down the the fight for a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as different political parties and stuff to kind of come together. So there's part of that. Sure. But I just was like, man, this was clearly like, I'm sure everybody was watching this and Reagan did a good job with the speech. And I don't, I just felt like there was a, there's something I think that is, and I don't think this is the, what we're want to talk about too much tonight, but in some ways I think it's just a good thing to have a leader that can do that if that makes sense to kind of be able to speak to the people in a, in a tough time. And it didn't sound obviously right, the speech was rehearsed and stuff, I'm sure, but it didn't sound like a, just, you know, fake. He's just doing this cause he has to, cause that's what the expectation is, but actually was able to speak to the people in a powerful way. And I don't know. I just kind of question a little bit if for the, yeah, of late, well, I won't name too many. I mean, there's only been a couple presidents of late, so, but uh, how, if that would be able to happen again, like it did there. It was about just a, just a tactical progression. And the question in my head was like, how, you know, did this slow down our U.S. space program? This was the 25th flight of 135 of the space shuttle. So not even like a fourth of the way through the total number it did delay it about two years the next the next one didn't go up till yeah two and a half years later what are your guys's first thoughts on just space exploration i feel like you'd hear some people say you know it's just a lot of money you know let's use our resources like not that it couldn't produce good things but we have a lot of problems here would that money be better spent in other ways that type of thing yeah, I mean, I feel pretty strongly about its, <clears throat> um, I guess you would say, philosophical importance. I, I'm, ju- I'm, re- I'm thinking of Matthew McConaughey's quote from Interstellar, like, we weren't made to dig in the dirt, we were made to chase after the stars or something like that. And, you know, it's today, there, you know, there's a lot of conversation of... Um, things like oh we got so many problems here at home we should be spending money here and well i mean yeah obviously need to be responsible and allocate resources uh, appropriately with budgets but i think a, a pretty useful parallel or metaphor you know um the notre dame cathedral burned down a few years ago right and they're a sort of similar hubble bub. Like, we should be spending the money to 
um, you know, put all of the homeless folks in houses instead of rebuilding Notre Dame or doing, you know, X, Y, or Z with it. But it really is the exact same thing in the sense that we can't help even those who would critique it um, still can't, we can't help ourselves that we like to look upwards. We like to wonder. And whatever practical benefits we gain along the way is great, but we certainly can't just live in this world of, well, what's the cost-benefit sort of thing of this? Like, no, Kennedy Kennedy wasn't saying, mm, I think we're going to make $7 billion if we go there. Like, how? But we are, we're the country that's been to the moon, and no one else has. And how much does that attitude penetrate so many things that we do as Americans you know from how people stand at the assembly line in Detroit to how they act as fathers and mothers like yeah America has done crappy like crappy thing but like I'm still I'm still happy with being American and you can still be happy with being British too for your own things that a British person does but like this is part of our story. These are the things that we did. And I think that, that that attitude is so critical as a part of space exploration. Because that is, as Captain Jean-Luc Picard and Captain James T. Kirk said, like, that is the ultimate final frontier. I have a 2.5 part question to follow up on your line of thinking. Which is more valuable to society, a common enemy to fight, or a new frontier to conquer, mm. or what if would it, what, is there any benefits to stop doing both? Stop with the enemy and the next stop front- with yeah yeah space yeah. Expo- like what if we did? Part one on like to yeah you're mostly talking about all right space is important. Um, but what if yeah. it's not? What if we're just like we're good there? I think I think there'd be a certain like short term benefit and like money saved right. And it's not like humanity would go extinct or something silly bizarre like that. But it's like you're also not going to die if you stop going to church, but I think that you will have a less colorful and more muted society if you don't have space-type things, right. muses, okay. to pursue. It is probably also a common enemy. Like If we stop, China or Russia won't, and there is probably a power advantage to... Yeah, I mean, sure, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Ross, what do you think? To the question of what, what's say that the question more time was it what's better? Well, I was just kind of trying to think back, think back to like peak, like once we got on the moon, I you know maybe I feel like interest probably tapered off, like the shuttle's cool a few times, but sure. I mean, how many times did the shuttle launch while we were in grade school and middle school? Like, how many shuttle launches have you seen live, right? I don't remember watching. Sure. I can like picture it going up, but I've watched more SpaceX launches um, than I did shuttle, and there were literally hundreds of shuttle launches during our lifetime, at least 100. Um, yeah. 
So we didn't care anymore, like that didn't compel us enough. But common enemies or like those those have compelled us to action. I don't know. Do we Yeah, I'm just contrasting that if we've got a grand enough vision to inspire development or something to achieve as a society versus somebody on the other side of the Well, ocean. okay, so I'm trying to connect this line of thought with have some to. of Ross's maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a dead end. Main dis no, no, it's not. It's not. It's not well, that hard. I feel um, like it fits well with my Mallory quote a little bit. I don't know if that's what you were trying to jump into. Well, yeah, exactly. Because what what Landon you're sort of saying, or at least being the devil's advocate for, is that, um, yeah, once once we got to the moon, it's like. Okay, next one is Mars. That's way too far away. Let's focus on some other things. But, you know, getting to Mars and getting to the next place, whatever that is, like, it's still, it's not like, it's not like we just take a break for 30 years and it's like, okay, now let's go to Mars, right? It, it's ju just like in professional or Olympic athletes, like, you might have this period of early success and then you have this new goal that there's no not going to be any immediate payoff but there's going to be just years of boredom in a sense the space shuttle in a sense is the boredom that america's undergone like elon musk i'm sure learned a lot of things from space shuttles about why they're bad right he's gonna we're gonna create a rocket that's more disposable or more you fit you know whatever stuff so that that's my my response to why the boring stage of space travel quote-unquote boring is still important to just grind through mm-hmm mm-hmm because I, f I feel like we will get to Mars, like, in our lifetime. Yes? Mm -mm. No? Somebody, man. I think in the next... I think next 30 years. I'd be surprised if it was not in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Speech Guys, episode 7048. We made it! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like... I don't know, to answer your question and kind of pull it into some uh, one of the quotes I think is good. At first, I was going to say the common enemy because it seems to like survival, like especially if it's like a significant enough enemy that could like cause harm. So I'm picturing more like the World War II, like a Hitler, like a very power, like an enemy that actually, you know, is as big as you are. Um, but I feel like one thing that might be a little bit different as far as like what it elicits from someone is I feel like when I th you think of like enemy and fighting it kind of is this like basic survival instinct in a way I think where and not just space but more the hope looking upwards exploration seems to be something a little bit higher um, and I don't know if that makes yeah. sense or not and I don't know if this is a good analogy so maybe as I start talking about it it'll sound dumb but don't podcast scared I'm picturing like animals have this in some ways kind of like can unite to fight a common enemy, I guess, if that makes it not that they not that it would get it phrased like that. But I'm picturing again, like this is the idea of survival, right? Like um, 
I don't know. I'm picturing, you know, a pack of wolves might try to fight off a bear. I'm not, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just thinking something. But I feel like this looking up and outwards and and forward seems to be a uniquely human thing. So to tie that in then, so I've got a quote from George Mallory here, which um, George Mallory, for anyone who doesn't know, was one of the people who uh, was one of the early on people trying to climb Mount Everest. Uh, He ultimately died on one of the attempts to climb Everest, and man, I don't think his body was recovered for, it was like, not a hundred years, but it was a long time until they recovered his body. So anyways, this is someone that died in a trying to climb Mount Everest. And this is his quote. When asked, what is the use of climbing Mount Everest? Mallory famously responded, quote, it is of no use. If you cannot understand that there is something in man, which responds to the challenge of this mountain and goes out to meet it, that the struggle is the struggle of life itself upward and for forever upward then you won't see why we go. What we get from this adventure is just sheer joy, and joy is, after all, the end of life. We do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to live. That is what life means and what life is for. Any thoughts on that? Does that seem to tie in well? Uh, he poetically... That answers, yeah. that answers it. Yep. Um, I do think, I don't know, that just struck me a little bit. Um and I don't, I think, and I think we've talked about this before maybe with like startup businesses and stuff. And, but I do feel like there has to be some sort of prudence. Like, I feel like you could hear that and someone could like ju- use that as justifications to just make bad decisions. Um, so especially that part, we do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to live. So I feel like someone could take that quote and kind of run with it and just use it to justify what I would maybe call irresponsible decisions. But at the same time, I think the true the quote is very true, and most people probably uh, need to take it to heart a little bit more. Well, yeah, but the the sort of like um, prudential litmus, if you will, is sort of sort of there present in the question right it's like well then what does it mean to live does does living mean um um you know re voluntarily remaining childless so that you can eat at chilies you know every night the rest of your life and go parasailing in belize or is there something more core and fundamental within the heart of man and woman to be generous with your vocation and be be spiritually and physically present for those you love at the moments they need you in life and to believe that there is there's metaphysical structures of reality that we ought to strain to understand right i mean i think we'd all argue that that is what it is to live that requires a greater breadth of human capacity mm-hmm. than eating at chilies and parasailing in belize right it's like how how do you convince the single belize single uh, guy who's parasailing in belize like 
you you can't <laughs> you can't you can't exactly convince like you you communicate it to the best you can but you know it's exactly the same way with like Christ with the encounter with the apostles it's like it's not like he was exactly convincing them like these are seven reasons you should come follow me it's as Peter expressed in the TV show chosen like no there's just something in the way he looked at me that said like this is this is your opportunity to finally live. Like, that's it. That's that's the crux. I read uh, recently, I was looking, I don't know, it was one of the artists, I read on Alabama Lance re- recently, and I don't remember the quote or the person who said it, but it was some scientist that kind of made a comment about, I feel like something similar, but that type of human's seeming need or recognition that there is more and I mean that Mallory quote is kind of puts a pretty fine point on it but I feel like to me that's one of the best and again I don't know if arguments the right word but when I hear that it just makes it so obvious like when people talk about like oh does God exist or not or you know is there something beyond this world that type of thing it's just humans seeming dissatisfaction with just the plain material world. And I don't like hearing that. And it's just, if, if you said this is all there is and yeah, like make money, eat at Chili's every night. I don't know. Like that type of attitude just seems so unsatisfying to me. Not that Chili's is bad, but um, I actually like Chili's, but that to me, it just seems like a pretty strong case that there is something more that we're trying to, um, to see. So something I think I think is kind of tied in because we and I, I brought it up in the outline and obviously we'll talk about it a little bit but just this idea so space exploration climbing Mount Everest like we seem to be very supportive of these things all right for these kind of maybe philosophical reasons maybe some good will come from it as well other in other ways but so I I kind of started just thinking about other avenues or ways that we kind of seek these challenging things right because it's not just it's not just this kind of fun adventure right the challenger people died uh even the mountain climbing right the person we quoted george mallory died trying to climb mount everest so i don't know i just started thinking about these somewhat i don't know if satisfying is the right word but these avenues or activities we do to try to you know, quote, uh, reach for the stars in some cases, literally and others not. I feel like way back when 600 years ago, maybe just ocean exploration, people could have said similar things, right? Like, why do we need to sail and look for the new world or whatever they were looking for? Um, and then I kind of started, my mind started going to just with the George Mallory quote, just kind of climbing in general. So I started thinking about those documentaries like the Don Wall and Free Solo and stuff like that. So I don't want—I don't think we should spend a ton of time on it, but I just think these other activities, these other avenues that could be potentially dangerous. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I know we—I feel like I guess I'll say one other thing that maybe will help. So because um, one, I think something maybe is more. 
I see on a more daily basis is so I'm a physical therapist and I work with a lot of people that have suffered spinal cord injuries. Um, and I have multiple patients that have s- suffered a spinal cord injury from dirt biking. And I've kind of just been, so in a similar way, they're doing something that, that they like to do, that they love, that's fun and bad things can obviously happen. So it's dangerous. And I've just kind of always been struck by how they don't really seem to be against dirt biking afterwards. Um, so I'm not saying that's wrong. I just am kind of struck by that. I feel like part of me would be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But the people that I know who are in that p- position, obviously they're not glad that they have a spinal cord injury, but they don't seem to have any sort of negative feelings towards the activity itself. So I was uh, I read a book very good called Forget Me Not, which is written by the spouse of the gentleman who found George Mallory's body, Conrad Anker. Um, and it's the autobiography she wrote that revolves around her losing her husband, Alex Lowe, in an avalanche around the year 2000, I think, and ultimately marrying his best friend, Conrad, uh, who's also, uh, who is just as much a serious mountain climber. Um, and... uh, me and my mom and I have actually both read the book and we discussed a little bit um, the level of responsibility or okayness, if you will, with uh, Alex, you know, mountain climbing like that and then obviously losing his life. And, you know, maybe there's some bias because, yeah, I'm obviously a, we'll just round down the 30 something year old guy. And my mom being an uh, late middle-aged uh, woman. Um, yeah, so there's obviously potential bias in our demographic there and why we think differently. But, yeah, I mean, obviously life does need to change with respect to those pursuits once you have people who emotionally and or financially depend on you. But, you know, at the same time, it's also, I do think, really, really important for a child to see their parent, like, excited in the way that, okay, if mountain climbing is a thing that gets you excited, and that then that's something important to pursue. Yeah, I mean, you can't be going on mountain trips back to back to back, but here and there, um, certainly... I mean, my buddy Cor and I go rock climbing quite a bit, and we're not like Conrad Anchor, but I can. There's Corey has kids, and there's certainly um, there's certainly parents who would just not do it, just not do any of the rock climbing that he does or we do because it just seems too dangerous. But it seems really important for his kids for his kids to see that. Um, so I don't think there is like a cut and dry like you can do this, but not this, you know, as a parent. Um, and changes do certainly have to take place once you have kids. But yeah, I I would like to think that I would be feel similar to what the, what the heck was her name? What did I say her name was? I believe you just said his wife. <laughs> really? Okay, Alex's wife. I would like to think that I would not resent my spouse if they died in that way assuming that they were being as cautious as they as they could have been 
So that is that is my take on it. Or if they're going on a space shuttle, that you know you you do what you gotta do. But again, potential single young person bias there. Landon, you got a kid now. Would you climb Mount Everest or go to outer space? Golf on the most extreme landscape in the world. <laughs> I feel like there's got to be some just war type principle for the likelihood of fatality for a given adventure. Um, like the the adventurers who just died in the Ocean Gate submersive vessel to view the Titanic. Tra- a tragic incident... But something about that feels different than it's probably more on the line of like Mount Everest than the Challenger. Whereas like every many people have now been to Mount Everest and it's more of a personal thing or a personal yeah. interest versus maybe like a being elevated to a societal exploration being on the cunning edge of advancing society i mean i feel like it's probably hard because i feel like most people would say yeah there's some activities that are clearly silly and some that are not i do think it's probably worth considering uh, mike i remember one time you said that like steve asked you how mountain climbing was because it makes you come alive or something like that and i feel like there's something to the effect of like comparing and i know what you're saying but like yeah comparing like somebody who like lives it and breeds it versus like a tourist, if that makes sense. Like that to me seems like a distinction that, because I feel like you'd have, you'd have to ask. Yeah, I, I think there is. You have to ask what the person's motivation is I think there is a certain distinction. It, that makes sense. So if your motivation makes you come alive or has some sort of obvious benefit or, right, like if you're going to serve your country in a war, like there's certain things that's like, yeah, the motivation there is, is, is not selfish and, all right, well, let's move on a little bit from... What, I, I had taken a few notes on the nature of the uh, disaster itself. Maybe we oh, can yeah, sort of stage... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was sort of struck by, as I said, the nature of the disaster and some of the particularities there. So did you guys know or identifying, preparing the exact engineering cause? The O-rings. The O-ring, yeah, in extreme cold temperatures, uh, causing those O-rings to stiffen and uh, some gases to leak where they should not be. But, um, yeah, sadly, and this seems pretty well believed for the most part, that you know, most, if not all, of the crew was conscious and aware immediately after the explosion, right? And they may have been alive all the way down until, I think it's 2 minutes and 45 seconds from the explosion until they would have hit the ocean surface. And I had made the note in the outline, I was, I was literally just tearing up in the coffee shop as I read that because I'm, I'm just imagining, maybe it's when you become an adult, I don't know, you just imagine things more clearly realistically just like being in that space shuttle knowing that you are going to die once this shuttle hits that water right in some amount of time and 
you know, if you're the teacher thinking about your students and, you know, the other astronauts who had children like this, this is it. They were doing this. They were worried that this thing would happen. And here, here it is. Or, or the engineers, you know, I was reading that like, man, the engineers, I mean, there's like a whole nother thing on this, but some of them, they like try to tell different individual superiors at NASA, like, you can't launch this space shuttle in these conditions. This something bad is going to happen. And seeing that happen, yeah, two, two minutes and 45 seconds to contemplate your, your impending death. I mean, they said, like, they tried to, some of them tried to activate some sort of, I, for, I forget what it was, emergency thing. A, a peep, yeah. some sort of peep system that apparently was, would have been useless. It, yeah. I don't know. I feel like part of me, I don't know. I can just picture, and I don't want to say like them in particular, but any sort of just, yeah, imminent death situation. Like I can feel people, I can like picture people just, just trying to do something just because it makes them feel like they have a chance, if that makes sense. I feel like I would be a combination of just like praying versus like just rapidly trying to do things almost to fill, fill the time right. more than anything, if that makes sense. I actually had a similar thought, like with that whole submersible thing with the accident, like, yeah, just this. It does seem something just gut-wrenching about, yeah, knowing death is coming and just being able to do nothing to to stop it. A case study. Have you ever guys heard of the Carter Racing case study? No. So <clears throat> I've uh, there's a cool article written up um, on this. I think it's been used in several MBA schools. Um where it's a case study, they divide everybody into four or five groups. Um, they're posited with like Carter Racing. Um, you know, it's a racing company. They're trying to get to the next level of sponsorship or to win. And there's all these things with the engines. It's a cool morning for the race day. And it's basically all hypothesized in the terms of like a NASCAR or IndyCar race. Um, with all of the same attributes and committee meetings and even like some risk factors on like, hey, if if the engine's in these conditions, like it's it's more dangerous for like the drivers in this NASCAR race. Um, but it's more presented as a business case. And most students always kind of like choose to race and kind of don't understand the safety precautions that are outlined that are outlined in the case and it always turns on its head in the business course when it's revealed this isn't carter racing this is actually all of the exact details of the space shuttle challenger and all of you that chose to race ignored the o-ring you know it blew up and it turns into an ethical part of the business course where like decisions and factors that go into you know um, you know pushing your product forward and trying to get a result and not worrying about really edge fractional cases of an equipment piece not working are serious life and death matters and um, kind of impart some wisdom on future uh, manufacturing company executives likely but um, 
yeah, most in this article anyway, it was presented like 50 teams presented and only one realized like, hey, there's a safety concern. We're going to like postpone the race. Um, I'm really curious how that would be presented in assignment because I feel like stuff like that it's always like leading you like, Oh, the right answer of course is to delay things. So versus in real life, like the opposite dynamic is more obvious. Um, But yeah. But yeah, I mean, especially with this, there were like, you know, these parts weren't designed and manufactured by NASA. Like NASA is carrying out, you know, more of the astronaut training, just the funding, all of the mechanisms for logistics and another company like built this rocket and knows some of the finer points on um, the risks. But they're also, you know, motivated to uh, deliver and keep the rockets going and, you know, not admit fault. Which now, I mean, it's, yeah, SpaceX. I think we've had a speech about SpaceX before. Maybe it was lost in the archives, but... You know, I don't remember a speech about no, SpaceX. but like completely private. Uh, you know, they push the button to launch, even though it's NASA astronauts in a SpaceX rocket. Like the the manufacturer is now is completely um, in charge of pushing yeah. the button, which, and they call it off for. You know, they almost always delay stuff. A couple of like things I think also are worth kind of visiting from the speech. One of the lines that I feel like really stuck out to me, we've grown used to wonders in this century, it's hard to dazzle us. When you first listened, did that jump out to you? Or is it was it just me? It's a true line, yeah. It didn't initially stick out to me necessarily, but I mean, I think that there's a lot of good content you have there. When did progress begin to jade us more than impress us? Social media, internet, TV, video games, Anabomb. With the things like social media, internet, TV, video games, sort of the Anabomb, it's like, it's just, it's it's almost like the proof is in the pudding. It's like, what's the benefit to social media? I don't know. You know, you have one conversation here, one conversation there, sort of um, purporting its benefits, but versus space is space i'm picturing like a kid at the grand canyon Mm. he's in the car just being a punk and you know dad's like get out of like look outside and yet he's like oh this is boring like that's that's the that's what i hear is some kid that thinks that this unbelievable sight is boring and I guess in that case it wouldn't because he was used to it because he'd never seen the Grand Canyon before. But I don't know. Like even Landon, you said uh, like how many? I mean, there's been a lot of space shuttle launches, but I mean in route, I mean what do you say, 125 maybe? Yep. Ish. 135. But like that, that's also not that many. Like if you think about other things that happen, and just the fact that like yeah, I've very watched very few live. Um, just kind of recognize maybe how big of a deal it is, but and maybe it's too maybe I'm maybe I'm digging too deep, but I feel like in some ways it kind of got me thinking about this idea 
that as we do more and more things, we just get less awed by them. And I think something, and I feel like we are more in the modern world. I was, I was trying to think about it, like in kind of tying it into this idea of believing in God or not. And I mean, not that the modern world invented atheism. They've been around, I mean, forever, but I just kind of, it struck me if maybe there was something similar in, in the sense of we kind of start to become less, and I don't say impressed, but less awed by these kind of unbelievable things. And then you start to not see the beauty, the, just how awesome it truly is similar to a, to a kid getting bored at the, at the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. So going back to the cathedral Notre Dame example, it's religions are the ones that build, build churches that are 10 are generally beautiful and, fill you with wonder right i mean atheists i mean i know the unitarians have their own churches but <laughs> generally speaking atheists don't build beautiful things i mean they build beautiful i'm not saying they don't build beautiful things at all but just generally speaking what is the broader social trend i mean it's sort of like what you're saying ross and there's i think um think a lot to that for sure of digging in the dirt if you will yeah there's a little saying around like beautiful old buildings in europe it's like they were built <clears throat> you had to believe in the things that those people believed in centuries ago to to build like that and as a whole we yeah. don't I mean, I think one example is that like so many of the churches that were started that are just unbelievable structures in, in European towns, like at the starting point, they were 100 or 150 year projects and, you know, hundreds of craftsmen yeah. who like just dedicated their life to that. Certainly they got a wage, but, you know, we're never going to see it to completion. But an aspect of that was like, yeah. Um, I think a nod to like the eternal that that work would carry over mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, heaven or. It's an interesting little mind game. What if like someone, be the president or some big CEO or somebody, was like, "Guys, we're gonna we're gonna start a project that's gonna take a hundred and fifty years, and no obvious material benefit is gonna come from it." Yeah, I mean, what what would it be for? That's sort of like a fun thing to play. What would it be for? What would be the thing? A Tower of Babel? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody would do it faster and cheaper, and we'd say yes. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's well, well said. It's like, okay, we can only do this by hand. The stones has to be hand-hewn. Yeah, what would, what would people say to that? Starting to get near the end, but one last part I would like to discuss. Um, I think Matt actually said this was his... This part stuck out to him the most. Um, but his... When Reagan comments to the school children. So, obviously, this is being watched 
all over the country. There's a teacher on board. He said, I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It kind of just stuck out to me because I feel like it's kind of the taking on, just tackling the bigger question of just why do bad things happen? Why does suffering exist? I mean, all of that together. But I do feel like he did a very good job at, I mean, not like, obviously not that you could cover it up because they saw it happen, but um, not trying to like dance around the question or lie to the kids, but he just gave a very honest answer. Um, I do think it kind of stuck out, but that being said, um, trying to remember, it kind of made me think of when we were in school and 9-11 happening. Uh, I remember, I didn't see it happen, but I do remember I was lining up outside of, I think it was PE class. Ah, I, ah, see, maybe I don't remember as well as I thought, but I'm pretty sure it was outside PE class and Mr. Rhodes was our teacher and they kind of told us that something really big had happened. And I feel like I can remember, even remember like them trying to show us footage or I don't know something like that. Um, I don't know. So if you guys remember 9/11 or seeing, obviously we're too young to see the Challenger explosion, but actually seeing something catastrophic happen. I mean, my memories of 9/11 and how they sort of correlate to this. I mean, in being a selfish 12-year-old, I mean, frankly, I didn't have the, I'd say, emotional maturity to care as much as I should have about just that immediate loss of life. Uh, I was was scared that we were going to have World War III and my brother and dad were going to be shipped off. You know, obviously it sounds sort of silly, but yeah, I remember that was what I was most anxious about on that particular day I do think that the sort of parallel between this between 9-11 and the Challenger disaster is that it's hard to say you know because I mean I was 12 when 9-11 happened there you do end up it does feel like post 9-11 Okay, well, now we live in a world where America is a target, right? And it it wasn't a target before. You know, how accurate of a sense that is, eh, we'll leave that for others to discuss. But that was, that was just the sense and the vibe. And, you know, was there some sort of messaging from adults or President Bush that could have rectified that sense I certainly didn't feel like overwhelmed by that sense it was just like something on on my mind to some extent if you will um but yeah I mean I did remark with the speech how important it was and actually okay I think climate change is actually a good parallel where and we've sort of talked about these before that um are pre well obviously republicans just pretend it doesn't exist but then democrats like also do a bad job communicating on it because it's you have people like aoc well the world's ending like okay that's not a very helpful attitude to build up in our children right the point is it's this the self-awareness that reagan was getting at where it's like you need to like you said recognize the tragedy of what happened 
but put it in context that yeah it's a tragedy but these things happen when you pursue challenging dazzling things right um i feel old i don't know do we i don't know if we covered 9-11 i feel like we also might have had that on another speech um i at school as a sixth grader we still didn't have tvs in our school so we legit we we had first discovered google so a couple of us like saw one or two pictures of it on google during the day and then several places had um the radio on there might have been like there was like one tv in like the principal's office that might have been on but like no that was just the teachers watching it um so i didn't see any actual footage of the video until like 9 p.m. that night after a baseball game, which we still had, and like the Casey's down the road jacked gas prices up from like a dollar fifty to five fifty, yeah. just out of concern yeah. that they weren't going to get oil delivered for a while. There was a sense of comfort that was like, oh, I live in a place in the world or a place in America that like they're not going to come after first. Like it's too bad to to be in a you know, big cities are targets, the East Coast, but I don't think they're going to come after farmland. So we, we've got some time to repair. If, if, uh... <laughs> yeah. Was my mom telling a story about my grandpa made them watch something, I think. And I think it was an effect of like, this is a really big deal. Like you're going to sit and watch this type thing. Yeah, do you feel like there would be value in just exposing? I guess there probably would be because mm-hmm. it's just such a big moment. Um, and then it kind of gives you as the parent the opportunity to kind of frame to the child how it's going to... Yeah, so I do feel like there's value in kids seeing these things in a certain way, assuming they're old enough. I've been, I even remember when you say it like that, like you need to sit down and watch this. My mom even, I remember her saying that for two odd instances, like sitting down, we watched the OJ trial um, verdict and the Timothy McVeigh verdict. Um, yeah. Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I don't know what to draw out from that, but just like. <laughs> this could be you, Landon, if you don't get your act together. Yeah, I I think I would tend towards the side of exposing my child to more more traumatizing <laughs> things than average. Watch because this, kid. Watch it's... this. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> because the alternative is, yeah, they're going to, and maybe this is just like how I deal with things, but you experience something that's some degree of tragic. And even if that child doesn't seem visibly affected by it, like if they've got half a brain, they probably are. And being, being with them in that experience and, you know, giving them the opportunity there to ask the right questions, whether it's something like, you know, seeing this is what it looks like to see a loved one die. I, I mean, I think that is isn't a really important experience to see when they're younger rather rather than older. Um, again, it's sort of the bias is like, well, you don't have any kids to deal with them being traumatized for a few weeks. But yeah, 
Yeah, but then obviously, like, with Reagan, it's like, well, there's also the flip side of this, too. You see something traumatic, but there's, like, yeah, seeing a loved one dies, like, well, this is why living your life intentionally and generously is really important, so that you you have loved ones around you when you die, or... I did watch a little bit of the live footage after the explosion, there was like a yeah. video where they like just kept showing the family members in the bleachers that were just like looking oh, up really? at the sky. Oh, really? Holy smokes. And I forget whose parents it were. It was. Um, that, it doesn't matter. But like one of it's like these people that are clearly like just looking up and kind of disbelief. I mean, they obviously knew something really bad had just happened. Some of the people were crying. Others just like were just like staring upwards. And like the news cameras stayed yeah. on them, and the, like at one point, like for like yeah. for the second or third time, like here's where it was still the parents of so and so, and I was just like struck by like cut away, <laughs> like I mean, show someone yeah. in studio or something other than these people that are literally just had to watch loved ones die. I mean, can you imagine going from the euphoria they were probably feeling for sixty seconds to? gosh the worst they've ever felt you know within a two seconds later like could provoke a heart attack honestly kind of we've been talking for a while moving into kind of last thoughts um final bell question i had kind of a two-parter and you can pick which one you answer is it time for the final bell (laughs) final bell all your love all your power, all your strength. Where is it? Yes. Hey, one more round. There's no stopping us now. <laughs> this is our round. No stopping now. We're starting. We don't stop. All your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you've got. This is your whole life. Do it now. Final bell question. I'm actually going to ask two. Uh, you don't have to answer both, but. And I don't love the word dazzled because when I think of the word dazzled, I picture like LeBron James doing a cool dunk. Jazz hands. <laughs> and we're all doing jazz hands in this on the sidelines. <laughs> and I don't think that quite captures what we're talking about. I'll use the word awe. When was the last time you were truly not even last time. When was a time you were truly in awe? Or if you've never been in awe before, and you just are digging in the dirt all the time. What is something you think we've lost? Like what's a, what should dazzle, what should dazzle us or make us feel all that we have kind of lost as a society? You can't say space flight. <laughs> but have you seen a rocket launch? I mean, it is. Yeah, I haven't. I, th- I think it's, I think it's a fair answer. I think you're allowed to say that. One actually was I've never seen what what's that called Starlink where it's like Santa's reindeer in the sky yeah I saw that for the first time a couple of weeks ago when we were uh, camping and canoeing in the Ozarks that was pretty cool we actually canoed past some people the next morning and they did not know what it was they were like did you guys see whatever the bleep that was like yeah. And then the other thing was, man, I'd probably say camping on top of Bell Mountain uh, in Missouri, which is the second highest peak in Missouri at 1,700 feet. 
the highest peak is just in the middle of the woods, so it's, it's, you don't really see a whole lot. But second highest peak, you've got about a 180-degree view of about 40 miles, probably, or 30 miles in, in every direction in front of you. It's not a place we ever hiked growing up, so going there for the first time and camping on top of the summit that you can't drive to, like it, you would, it'd be a really long hike to, to, to do in a day, but to experience something like that relatively later in life, that is, it's like this little, it's this hidden wonder, right? It like catches you off guard. I'm imagining like um, that book Secret Garden. All I remember from that movie a thousand years ago is like some little secret garden, right? It sounds like it's someplace very familiar to you, but just suddenly having access to this place that's familiar that was utterly unexplored. That's just a uniquely awe-filled opportunity. So, yeah, I can just see myself sitting on top of that summit just feeling the land so big in front of me. Mm. Or seeing Landon swing a golf club. <laughs> the thing that keeps coming across my head on my son's first birthday is the birth of a child. And the miracle that that is when everything goes right. That's pretty awe-inspiring. Not quite a rocket ship launching. Different thread of thinking. Similar to Landon's, and not even just the birth, but just and not I don't I don't think this is weird to say just what a woman's body does during pregnancy and labor, and I remember like being struck by like skin to skin is a big thing right now. I feel like 15 years ago, people would have said, and maybe I'm making that number up, but at some point that would have been seen as like a hippie thing. But then, like, finding out, like, actually, like, the woman's body temperature raises and, like, her chest is actually, like, warmer after birth or something like that because it's, like, a natural incubator for this child that just came out of the womb and is used to really warm and is now in a really cold place. I just remember thinking, like, struck by, like, man, like, you couldn't make that any better. Like, it just, like, it was just, uh, just so perfect. Before you have to experience all that, it's, like, it seems like this terrible, huge thing, and then it... I was like, man, we really only went to the hospital like in case something went wrong, but like nothing did. So it was just such like a huge thing. It's like, yeah, just she just kind of did it. Like, I do think just an overall sense. Um, I'll give just one more. Like, just when we went to Rome and just saw so many like the churches, I feel like seeing a glimpse of when people use literally used architecture and art to yeah try to somehow connect with with god or you know a higher reality and just like seeing that and seeing the churches and how beautiful they were and then just coming back to the states like i just didn't really have a i feel like there's not a good way to describe it well it's been great unfortunately matt was not with us this evening hopefully he'll be back next time i suppose i am traditionally on uh on deck here for next episode any hints any speeches i've got in mind i'm uh playing with maybe some um speeches that might have come up in a john hughes film perhaps maybe uh breakfast club i don't know maybe home alone 
maybe the book 1984. So some think some uh, some of those ideas I'm sort of playing with. So I'm probably going to end up going with the pop culture thing because that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was at least one Rocky movie from the 80s. I my mom said we're not allowed to. <laughs> mom, <laughs> she says too much. Too much rock. Just do a medley of the best so. '80s pop culture movie speeches. Just throw it. We we'll do a whole yeah. episode where we're only allowed to quote '80s movie speeches. That'll be the entire text. Well, hey, thanks for thinking and drinking <laughs> with us. Hey, be safe out there. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Cue the music. Dead ends come and go. Look toward the horizon Up ahead you'll find A peace of mind Relief from the trying I had burned a bridge Wrecked in a ditch Had to ask forgiveness Dead ends come and go Look toward the horizon times we fell Oh, I've been afraid some days But the road will lead us to a better place The road will lead us to a better place